You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. This year, Monica and I are working on 35 years of marriage. Uh, let, let me finish the sermon first. No, no. The operative word there is working on 35 years of marriage. And in August, we'll celebrate 35 years of marriage, but we're still working on it. Um, I met Monica uh, about 40 years ago, soon after her parents separated. And um, her father had left her mother to move in with another woman. The divorce ensued. And it's been over 40-something years, and they're still not reconciled. Um, early in our marriage, we were married. I was 20, and Monica was a much older 21. And uh, we were married, and, and as we went through the early years of marriage, it soon became apparent there was a difficulty, and part of that difficulty was a distrust that Monica had towards me. And I, I didn't understand. I didn't understand. It was about the fifth year of our marriage before it came to a head, and I just, why is it that you just don't trust me, particularly with regards to other women? And the, res- the, the ensuing answer was pretty obvious, that I was just a little slow to understand, was that if, if the most important man in her life at the time, her father, was willing to leave her mother for another woman and, and destroy that family, what makes her think that her husband's not going to do the same thing? And we have lived for 35 years with that reality. And, and I asked her this week, is she a little more trusting than she was 30 years ago? And she's a smidge more, okay? So my track record has gone, carried a little bit of weight. There's probably not a person in this room who has not been touched by the impact of divorce. Whether you've been divorced, whether you're married to someone who's divorced, whether uh, your parents are divorced, or your spouse's parents, or a sibling, it's rare that we find anybody together that doesn't have some story of the, the collateral impact of divorce. In our culture particularly, it's very common. Today, Jesus addresses the topic of divorce, because contrary to what we, what we might think, it was a hot topic back in his time, and it wasn't settled, and it still never has been settled. There are, there are, and there's a lot of things. I want to say this really up front. There are a lot of things we could talk about with divorce. That's the danger of preaching on it. There's a lot of things we could that I'm not even going to say anything about. Okay? This, the, the danger of this is I'm walking through a minefield of emotions with most of the people in this room. And, and there's a lot. Of, I'm not going to talk about remarriage after divorce. I'm not going to talk about what Paul addressed with between the marriage between a Christian and non-Christian. I'm not even going to go there. Uh, and, and there's probably 101 what-ifs. Well, what if the spouse is abusive? What if this? We're not going to touch them. We, we can't. We don't have time. My goal today is to focus on what Jesus said in Matthew. What did Jesus say in the context of the Sermon on the Mount that addresses this topic? And we're going to focus there. And I'm going to ask you, regardless of the, what you're feeling about now, uh, your uneasiness or whatever, I'm going to ask that you listen to see what Jesus said. And he had some, typically, in the Sermon on the Mount, he had some hard things to say. And we're going to listen to that, I hope, and learn from it. Before we, before we get to Jesus' actual words in, in Matthew, 
I want to remind us of the flow of the Sermon Out. The danger is taking some verses, pulling them out of context, throwing them up there and saying, this is the teaching on a topic. But Jesus is given a message that has a flow to it. And we need to remind ourselves of it. He, he starts off with what we know as the Beatitudes, the blessings, God's blessing on those who have kingdom character. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, even those who are persecuted because of him. They're blessed. He he talked about the calling that we are. Our identity is salt and light. How we live our lives impacts and influences other people, other Christians, but particularly other non-Christians. And then he talked about being followers of the law. What's What's the role of the law? Not just the Old Testament law, but all the law, the imperatives, the commands of the New Testament in our lives. And he said some very uncomfortable things there. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them to fulfill them. And then a little later in that teaching, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's when we go, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, wait, wait, wait. That's not, that's not the gospel, Jesus. And Jesus can say that because, because of the gospel, we, we, our righteousness is greater than the Pharisees because it's a heart righteousness. It's deeper. It's a righteousness of the heart, not simply keeping conformity to rules. It's a, it's a righteousness empowered by the Holy Spirit so that, and not simply self-imposed discipline. Because of that, it's a deeper, greater righteousness than just following a bunch of rules. And then Jesus says, hey, you guys want some examples of that? I'll give you six. We've already looked at two. Anger. He says, you have heard that it was said of old, do not, you shall not murder. And, and I, he goes, I say to you, you shall not be angry with your brother. Because when you're angry, you've already murdered him. And then he goes on and says, hey, not only anger, but he goes on and says, lust. He says, you have heard that it said, do not commit adultery. I say to you, if you look at someone else with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Already hard things right out the chute, but those are issues of the heart. And then Jesus follows, though, too, with the third aspect, his third comparison. You've heard that it was said, but I'm going to say to you. And he does that with divorce. So if you stand with me, we're going to read these verses. There's only two verses. And we're standing, because this is the text we're going to focus on today, one of the texts. And I want, you to, I want us to honor God's word uh, as we stand. I'm going to read these, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we admit and come before you as your children, acknowledging sometimes we have a hard time grasping, or not so much understanding, but grasping the significance of your words. Lord, I pray for all of us here as the emotions might run high, the objections might be coming to mind already. I just pray, Lord, that you just soften all of our hearts and let us receive Not just law, because it's not, but grace and mercy, kindness that you showered for us in Christ, and that may that be the backdrop for which we are listening to these words. And we thank you in your precious and glorious name. Amen. You may be seated. I do think it's not a little thing that Jesus says here. I want to tell you about what it means to be kingdom righteousness. He starts with anger, then goes to lust, and then follows that immediately up with words about divorce. Jesus brought up the divorce. And I think the significance there is because the, in the order and the connection are important. 
I think, I think personally that uh, a common outcome of uncontrolled anger and uncontrolled lust is divorce. We flip it around. We can say it another way. A primary, two primary causes, not the only causes, but two primary causes of divorce, a breakdown of a marriage and a family, is uncontrolled anger and lust. So I think Jesus put it here because first he deals with the causes. Now he's dealing with the repercussions of having those things uncontrolled. Now, Matthew records these only two verses, and they're concise. But Matthew's gospel, he records another time in his gospel, in chapter 19, where Jesus is asked the question about the divorce, and Jesus says the same thing, but he elaborates a little bit more. So I'm going to read that for us, because we're going to put these two passages together and look at that together for what Matthew records Jesus is saying about divorce. The other passage is Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. Hear these words. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for divorce one's wife for any cause? And he said, Have you not read that that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for, marital, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus, because of the initiation of the controversy of the Pharisees, is expanding his answer a little bit. Uh, it's interesting, the Pharisees bring him, and they're trying to catch Jesus for two reasons probably. One is, it is a hot topic among themselves. The two schools of the Pharisees disagreed on, what, uh, on the topic of divorce. They're trying to lure Jesus in. What we're going to see also later in Matthew's Gospel, this very topic cost John the Baptist his life. John the Baptist said, hey, to Herodias' wife, it's not lawful that you have that woman as your, as your, as your wife, and, it, and he was killed for it. So they, knowing these kind of things, are trying to draw Jesus into a controversy. And it says they're there to test him. Now, both Matthew 5, Jesus, and in Matthew 19, the Pharisees refer to uh, Moses giving permission for divorce. They both refer to that. You have heard that it was said. And then he quotes Moses. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces a wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. They said to him, Moses commanded that if you divorce her, give her a certificate of divorce. Well, where did that come from? What, what is that? Did Moses really say that? Well, both, both references are referring back to Deuteronomy 24. At the end of Moses' life, he's, he's going to die. He's not making it into the promised land. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. And he's going through his Deuteronomy, the second law. I'm going to reiterate to you guys so you get this down. I'm going to say this again. And he's going through it. And this topic comes up, and Moses gives an explanation. In Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, Moses says this. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds no favor in his, eye, his eyes because because he has found uh, some indecency in her, he, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, her, puts it in her hands and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of the house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and that latter man hate, hates her or writes a certificate of divorce um, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if that latter man dies, who then took him to be his wife, then the former husband, who sent her away, may not take her 
again to be his wife after, he has, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. So what is, what is Moses talking about? Well, first of all, he says, if you're going to divorce your wife, you need to, this is his point, you need to give her a certificate of divorce. You can't just say, get out of the house, woman. You have to write it down, and you have to document it, and you have to hand it to her. So she has it in her possession. Why is that a big deal? Because if you divorce her and she heads out, she needs to have proof that you kicked her out, you divorced her, and that she's not an adulteress, that she's not a harlot, that she's not a prostitute, and that gives her the right to remarry. And Moses is saying, you need to make sure she has that when she leaves. That's what it is. Um, it's to protect the woman, verifying that she's divorced and that she could remarry. Now, notice, Moses permitted divorce. He did not command divorce. He did not command it. He said, if this happens, um, here's how to do it. In fact, he didn't even say, here's permission to divorce or here's uh, uh, allow it. He spoke to a specific situation. We, when we read this, it gets kind of confusing, but let me rephrase what Moses said. This is what Moses said. Moses said, if a married man finds an indecency in his wife, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, and if he gives her a certificate of divorce, and if, notice all the ifs, and if she remarries, and if her second husband divorces her and dies, then, and here's the point, this is the one command in that passage, the first husband cannot remarry her. That's the command. It's not a command to divorce, it's to protect the woman. The, why can't the first husband remarry her? But what's up with that? That's kind of odd, isn't it? Isn't it kind of odd? We would think so. In verse 4, he says, He may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, because that's an abomination to the Lord. What's, what's the point? Here's the point. Moses is giving men a warning. He's saying, don't be hasty in divorcing your wife. You are not going to trash a woman's life and then go back on your decision as if nothing happened. You don't get a second chance. So don't be quick in divorcing a woman. That's what's Moses' point. It is not a blanket thing, hey, pass out the certificates so you can divorce your wives. Moses does seem to provide open permission for divorce, doesn't he? If we read these verses, there's a little bit of vagueness in the, answer, in the description. He says in verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and if then he finds no favor in his, she finds no favor in his eyes because, why? She has, he has found some indecency in her. Here's the problem. He didn't define the indecency. He, he uses a general term. He doesn't, he doesn't list the six legitimate reasons. He just lays it out there. So that's the, that's the debate. The debate is what is that, in, what, because of what indecency, Moses? Now, we know Moses probably didn't mean adultery because adultery was punishable by death. If a man or a woman, either one, was caught in adultery, and it usually takes two, right? They're supposed to be stoned to death. So therefore, divorce is not an issue because they could remarry because if my wife committed adultery, she's dead. I'm, I'm a widower. I get to remarry. It's not an issue. So it probably doesn't mean adultery. Now, this is the problem in Jesus' time. This is the debate running on in Jesus' time. What did Moses mean? And there's two views, just like there's always two views. There's the conservatives and the liberals. Hey, go figure, okay? 
The, the conservatives say, well, sexual immorality before marriage. In other words, it's not adultery, but if you find out your wife had been sexually active before you married her, that's legitimate grounds. Or if she performs or does some, some um, there's other descriptions of indecent sexual acts besides adultery, those are legitimate grounds. So the conservatives said, that's it. The liberal, and this is, and, and so now in Jesus' time, however, there's an exception here. In Jesus' time, however, the Jews, Israel was under Roman, Roman law, and the Romans did not allow people to be killed for adultery. So Israel was not allowed to stone adulterers. So therefore, in Jesus' time, they said adultery is a reason for you to divorce your wife. We can't kill her, or him, it goes both ways. So therefore, you have a legitimate grounds for it. So Jesus said, they said, that's it. The liberals said, any reason that displeases a husband, he has the right to let her go. Any indecency. She burns a meal, her, she gets older, and her looks change. It's time to find a new wife. And the liberals were going that direction more and more and more. And these two schools were butting heads, and, and both of them acting out in what they did. This is the controversy that the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus in. Jesus, commit to one camp or the other. Because either way, you're going to alienate a bunch of people. And if we're lucky, it'll get you killed. And the Pharisees asked him to test him. Which cause? For any reason? And the vague there, is it any reason, Jesus? Is it uh, uh, numerous reasons? Or is there even just one reason? You tell us, Jesus, which one it is. And Jesus responds. Jesus' response to their question of divorce is redirected, he redirects the conversation to the origin of marriage. He redirects their question by answering and talking about the origin of marriage. The Pharisees say, um, and came up to him and said to test him, is it lawful to divorce a man, uh, one's wife, for any cause? And listen to Jesus' answer. He answered them, he's answering their question, He's asking, he's asking them a question. Have you not read that who, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they say they no longer are two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So in response to their question, Jesus is redirecting them. And basically he says to them, you guys, by asking this question, are being selective in your reading of Scripture. Let's go back even farther past that and look at the original outlay from marriage. Jesus' point is before you can make any decision about divorce, you have to be clear about the design and purpose of marriage itself. Makes sense? Jesus refers back and he quotes out of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Before the fall, before there was sin. That's really, really important. This is God creates the universe, he creates the world and he creates marriage before there's ever any sin. Jesus is referring, and he says, he who created them from the beginning, them from the beginning made them male or female. Well, what is that? That's Genesis 1.27, which says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Both men and women are created in the image of God equally. And marriage is rooted in the fact that both of them, Jesus is saying, both of them carry the image of God. Now, closely related to being created in the image of God is the next verse in which he commissions man and woman with the mission of God in creation. 
the mission of God. God created man and woman. He says, I got something for you to do. You exist for a purpose. And, 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 and God told them this in, in Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, as, and they're in his image. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and everything that moves along the earth. And he goes on and says a few other things. So he says, not only you're in my image, but you have a purpose as a couple, as a marriage, in mission. And that mission is that it includes three things. Procreation, reproducing other Adams and Eves. Domestication, taking control and putting things in order. And dominion over the world. And catch this, together. Together through marriage. That's what, that's what God said back in, to Adam and Eve. And Je, Jesus then quotes Genesis 2.24 in his answer to the Pharisees. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two but one. Well, there, we don't have time to elaborate on that. There, Jesus is recounting that specificness of that union, the uniqueness of the union, a union that's like no other union. That union, that marriage, is exclusive between one man and one woman. It is intimate, and it is permanent. That's God's design for marriage. Notice that Jesus said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, but he didn't quote the verse previous. He's assuming that these guys know the verse previous, okay? But we need to remind ourselves, what is that verse previous to this? Well, the passages previous to this, before he, before he says that, he goes, the Lord, then we said, the Lord says, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The very first thing in creation that is not good, the only thing in creation that's not good is that man is alone. And then we're told that he goes and tries to name the animals and figure out that none of the animals work. It's also interesting, by the way, that God is with Adam, and that's not the relationship he's talking about. It's still something's missing from Adam's life. In God's design, it's this isn't good. So we read in Genesis, but, Adam, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him in all the creation. So, God, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up his face and, his, and, and the rib, and that the Lord had taken out of the man and made, him, and made into a woman and brought her to the man. A couple things real quick. First of all, God created woman for man, uh, from man and for man. She's a piece of him, but she's created for him to be a suitable helper. We don't have time to unpack all that, but they fit together. The second thing is God performed the first wedding ceremony, didn't he? He brought the woman to the man. By the way, this is why in Christian weddings, the father walks the bride down the aisle most of the time, because he is giving just like God did Eve to Adam, he's, they're reenacting that. Now, it's a quick wedding. The, the guest list is very short, right? There's three of them, okay? Probably before they had children. Um, probably fairly early, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself, but uh, fairly early, and, they, and they, um, he gives them the ceremony. My mind is racing. Let's summarize here. Let's summarize. Marriage. What did Jesus point? What's Jesus' point? If you're going to answer the question of divorce, let's be clear on marriage. Marriage is, I'm just going to run through these. Marriage is an expression of man and woman 
both being created in the image of God and commissioned for the mission of God together in marriage. Marriage is God's plan even before there was a woman for man to marry. Marriage is a key component of God's created order. It is not an accommodation to the existence of sin. This is all pre-sin. It is not an accommodation to, hey, how are we going to manage the human population when they reproduce? Hey, I'll do it. We'll invent marriage. No, that's not the way it worked. It is, it is also not a human or social invention. God invented this. Cultures didn't. Marriage is a specific design and purpose originated by God. Marriage includes one flesh, one flesh union that is established by God himself for each marriage. And that one flesh union is exclusive, intimate, and permanent. Marriage includes the established of a new household where marriage takes priority even over extended family relationships. That's a hard one sometimes. A man shall leave his parents and establish his own household. And that marriage is unique and sovereign in many ways. doesn't mean ignore your extended family, but that marriage relationship trumps and is precedent over even parent-children relationships. That's how much priority God put on marriage. And then Jesus adds, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, Jesus explains why Moses did give, say the words he did. The, the, the Pharisees come back and say, well, and we would do the same thing. Well, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Why then did Moses, it's written in our scripture, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Come on, Jesus. And Jesus answers them. He says in verse 8 of Matthew 19, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Notice Jesus' word. They said, why did Moses command us to divorce our wives? And Jesus says, no, he didn't command you, he allowed you to. That's a big difference. And it's a, it's a concession. And then Jesus makes it personal. I think the wording here is really significant. He says, he says, because of the hardness of your heart. He's talking to the people He's referring to the people he's talking to. He could have said their heart, Israel back then, hundreds of years ago. No, he said, you Pharisees, the reason we're having this conversation is because of the hardness of your heart. That's why we're talking about this. And it is, this, he's saying this, is, this hardness of heart, this refusal to yield to the grace and mercy of God, is still the primary problem and root cause of divorce. That's what Jesus is saying. Our, uh, in our selfishness, preferring other things other than what God has designed us for and to provide, has provided for us, then, and, and then acting on those in our hardness of heart and refusing to turn in grace and mercy is why things end up where they do. This is, I want to be clear, this is not to deny the incredible hurt and pain that many experience in divorce. Jesus is not ignoring that. He's simply not addressing that directly right now. But behind all those hurt and pain that many of you may have experienced, behind all that is somebody's hard heart. Somebody's hard heart is the cause of that pain and suffering. Might not have been yours, but it's somebody's. That's what Jesus is saying. And he said, from the beginning it was not so. Hard-heartedness entered the world after sin. Not in the time he created marriage. Marriage is not a reaction to that. Jesus is, 
it wants us to look previous to this, before there was hard-heartedness, before even our own hardness of hearts get in the way. Jesus wants to go back and, and look at our hearts and look, understand this. What is the cause of us? What's, what clouds our own understanding of this issue so that we can gain clarity in God's design and intention for marriage and we can appreciate that? That's what Jesus is trying to get them and us to do in the scripture passage. Now, Jesus is clear on the consequences of divorce. In chapter 5, verses 32, and chapter 19, verses 9, he says, But I say to you that anyone who divorces the wife except for a ground of sexual morality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then verse 9, in chapter 19, he says, And I say to you, this is a conclusion, these are both conclusions, whoever divorces a wife except for sexual morality and marries another one commits adultery. So understand who's committing adultery here as a result of divorce. Notice it widens, when there is a divorce, it widens and broadens the scope of sin involved in God's eyes. Everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery when she remarries. Whoever marries a divorced woman or a man is committing adultery. If a man divorces his wife, and then he remarries, he's committing adultery, and so is his wife he's married to. That's what Jesus is saying. This is weird in our, in our ears, in our culture. Illegitimate divorce causes bigger problems, is what Jesus is saying. He's saying if a man divorces his wife, and, 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 and the resulting, or a woman divorces, there is, there is allowances for that, then the result is adultery. What, what is implied by Jesus is that even if you legally, under civil law, divorce your spouse, you are still married in the eyes of God. And any subsequent marriage is adultery. A defilement of your first marriage. That's hard for our ears to hear. That is the clear understanding of what Jesus is saying repeatedly. This is very uncomfortable. Now, divorce is not, this is what he's trying to say. I think this is why he, one of the reasons he's saying that. Divorce is not the cure of sin. It does not distance us from sin, ours or even somebody else's. It only complicates it and extends the reach and extends the devastation, causing greater collateral damage. That's what Jesus is saying. Those are hard words. But Jesus does give an exception clause, doesn't he? Jesus, it's called the exception clause. A.K.A. the loophole. Right? He repeats it in both passages except the ground, the ground of sexual immorality. What, what is that? What is that? What did, what did Jesus mean? The word sexual immorality is the word parnea. We get the word pornography from it. It means sexual immorality. It means sex out the, outside the context of marriage. Any sex between any people who are not married together, a man and a woman who are not married together, is sexual morality. Adultery, 
the biblical word fornication, we don't use that word, but sex outside of marriage, unnatural sexual acts prohibited. That's the word Jesus used. It's very broad. Jesus is permitting divorce only on the grounds of serious sexual sin. Now, we need to say this here. Jesus is permitting divorce. He is not demanding or commanding divorce. He never makes the command. He permits it. Let's don't be too quick to go past this. Not the permitting, but what is, what is this exception, the sexual morality? Why this exception? Isn't there other things that come to our mind about why people get divorced? Why this one? And it's the only one Jesus gives. And probably what Moses meant. This is exception. Must, this is the point of this exception that, that we need to walk away with. Not that there is an exception. Not that there is a loophole. Not that there is a certain conditions that give us that permission. This exception must make us acutely aware of the seriousness of sexual sin. Jesus is recognizing that sexual sin can destroy marriage bonds. It's, he's taking it that seriously. Also, this exception must be considered in the context of Jesus' own endorsement of God's original design and purpose of marriage. Inside that design of marriage is a one flesh union that should not be defiled. And when it is defiled, it loses its uniqueness and its intimacy. It's gone. Jesus recognizes that. This one flesh unity that is the primary aspect of completing the mission of God through marriage, through procreation, domestication, and dominion of the world, becomes corrupted and dysfunctional through sexual sin. And and it's not, something here to remember is, why was this an issue with Jesus with exception rule? Because remember that they couldn't, in Jesus' time, they could not kill or stone somebody for committing adultery. The Old Testament punishment for sexual sin was death. That in and of itself should show us how seriously God takes it. It's the same with murder. In, in our American ears, that is weird. That's strange. That is absurd. That is completely absurd that God would take sex so seriously that people who violate that marriage union should be put to death. That, what, what are you, what's he talking about? That's how far we have come as a culture from understanding the purity of marriage and what sex is about. That when Jesus can say this and the, and the Old Testament law says that, we're like, look, those guys were mean. no. God values sexual intimacy. And he wants to protect that. That's why it's so important. In the Old Testament, if somebody was stoned, then the the unoffending spouse was free to marry because they were a widow. Jesus is saying that even though the penalty, the death penalty is, is no longer used, the effect is still relevant. If your spouse has been violated your sexual union, you're permitted, you're not commanded, you're permitted because it's as if they should have been put to death. You are now free to remarry. That's what Jesus is saying. We live in a world where sex is a commodity to be bartered and traded at will. We view sex in our culture, culture as a recreational activity. 
And as long as it's between the two, quote, consenting adults, it's, we're good to go. And God says, not from the beginning. It's never been that way. And that's why it's strange to our ears. But God designed sex between one man and one woman to be an expression of his image, an expression of his covenant relationship, an expression of his mission to take dominion of the world together. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses the divorce immediately right after addressing the topic of lust. Again, I want to come back that that's significant. Hebrews, author of Hebrews says, let, the marriage, let marriage be held in honor among all of you. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual moral, sexually immoral and the adulterous. Okay. That's the, I would hope you would agree the clear teaching of what Jesus is saying. What do we do with that? What do we do with this? How do we, first of all, I started thinking through it this week, talked to Josh about how, how do we not go down that road to divorce? I'm also thinking, how do we, once somebody has been divorced or you're married to somebody or your parents are or whatever, divorce has occurred and you are feeling that collateral impact, whether you're the one divorced or not, how, how do we deal with that? Especially if you're the one, one of those parties. What, what's the answer for that? We're not, we can't be left just hanging with this. Well, I think the answer is just what Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. I think what Jesus has been teaching up to this point, he got to this point from a direction. What did he say? And whether or not it's, the, whether we're trying to re- struggle with our marriages, whether we're working conflict with our marriages, whether we're helping somebody else out with their marriage, or whether we're dealing with the fact that we're divorced, married to somebody, all, whatever the combination that you have in your mind, and we all do, Monica and I do, then what is it that we should be working on? And here's my proposal to you. It's the same for everybody. It's the same for everybody, because it's the gospel. Now, there's a warning I want to give. We want a quick fix. We want a formula to solve our problems and take them away. They don't exist. Whether you're married or divorced, they don't exist. Marriage and living with the cost of divorce is a journey. We are, we are all in some capacity on that journey. And how we travel on that journey matters. So how do we travel on that journey of marriage and divorce? A number of things. One, and this is from the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think we need to go very far after that, past that. One, pursue the personal and relational qualities of living in God's kingdom. How does Jesus start this whole teaching? With the Beatitudes. He says this is a blessing. It, doesn't, it was strange to our ears. It still is strange to our ears. It's even stranger when we talk about it in the context of marriage or divorce. But it's still the same kingdom values that Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, even those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're blessed. Take those qualities on. Pursue those qualities. They'll make a difference. How, how do we get these realities in our life? What is the kingdom? Jesus said... And his message from the beginning was, repent, the kingdom of heaven is hand. It's here, the kingdom's here, repent. 
We know that, that the scripture tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We will be part of his kingdom. And it's with the heart, notice, the heart that one believes and is saved. And it's with our mouth that we confess. That's believing in the gospel. We take on the Beatitudes when we respond to the gospel, turn ourselves and say, I'm going to follow you, Christ. Make me like you. Well, what does that look like? It looks like the Beatitudes. We've already talked about that. Another thing we need, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus has called us to live as salt and light, influencing other people's lives. Our marriage partners, our families, other people's, we are salt and light. Those are identity language. We talked about it. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What, regardless of whether we're struggling in our marriage or responding to divorce or whatever, that should be, people should be able to say, wow, I, I don't understand how you can live this way and respond this way, but surely God is great. That's what it means to give God the glory. Somehow you're responding to this hardness in such a way that only the gospel can make a difference. I want to see that. I want to know that gospel. We talked about that. We need to be clear on the origin and design and purpose of marriage. We, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of false and wrong images of both marriage and, and self-serving views of marriage in our culture. We need to get back to the biblical thing. I already described that. We're not going to go over it again. Deal with anger issues quickly and consistently. Jesus began this whole conversation with deal with anger. Deal with anger before the poison of bitterness and resentment taint everything else in the relationship. Again, whether you're married or divorced or dealing with it. Bitterness and resentment is a poison that will destroy not only other people, but yourself. Deal with anger. Deal with lust issues quickly and consistently. That's what Jesus said. Be radical. I mean, Jesus' language, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Yes, it's metaphor, but he means be radical. Remove the things. Sex, lust is that important. Remove from our lives the things that cause us to even think about going down the wrong way. And do it over and over and over again. And we need each other to do that. Josh talked about that last week. And part of that, pursue passionately and consistently your spouse. If you're, I, years ago, I was given advice by a pastor dealing with lust in marriage. It's a, it's a husband class. And he said, you're going to lust. Lust after your wife. Pursue that. Fantasize that. Some people don't like hearing that. They, oh, oh, oh. It's been great advice. Seriously. In many different ways, it's been great advice. But it has been one of the primary prohibitors of me going down roads that I should never go down. Know for sure the seriousness of sexual sin, especially adultery. God takes it very, very seriously. Lastly, seek reconciliation. In your marriage, seek it quickly and consistently. If there's been divorce, seek it quickly and consistently. It doesn't change. Jesus even said, if you, if, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, we've already looked at this, and there, remember that your brother, sister, wife, son, daughter, has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. You, we can't worship God 
and know that other people have issues with us. We need to seek reconciliation to the best of our ability. You might not get reconciled. We have attempted to get reconciliation to family members and Monica's side. They have refused. But it's not because we didn't put an effort into it. Seek reconciliation. Some of you are saying, you know, okay, there's, there's a lot of damage here. There's a lot, of, there's a lot going through my head here, the what-ifs and all that kind of stuff, and the, the hurt and the pain and the dysfunction and all those things we go through. And, and we need to remember that the Word and Jesus and the Bible is very aware of that, more than I think we are. And they address that over and over again. Paul was saying, now this wasn't in the context of divorce. This is the context of people living in ways they shouldn't. And he, he says to the Corinthians, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, do you, do you, when he's dealing with their, their messed up lives, and they were a messed up group of people, you know, a lot like us. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Do you not know, don't be deceived, that neither the sexual and moral, the adult, adult idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles, will inherit the kingdom of God. If he left it with that, we got law and we got pain. Paul goes on and says, I think it's one of the most fascinating, significant verses in the Bible. He says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. You guys came from that. He says, I know that. And then he goes on, but you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That is not who you are now. And whether we're struggling with marriage or we're struggling with the repercussions of divorce, when we come to Christ, we're washed. We're cleansed. The forgiveness is ours, regardless of our involvement in or contribution to it or just be receiving the garbage that it gave. But it's still the same answer, and that's the gospel. We are washed. We were sanctified. We were made holy. We're saints already, regardless of our past. We are justified. And that's why we celebrate communion every week, is to remind us, regardless of the trash in our life, regardless of the sin that we may have experienced or sin against us, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week to remind us, and we all need that reminding, every single one of us, that we are washed, we're sanctified, we're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. When you come today, take the Lord's Supper, regardless of your perspective of this, remind yourself that you are clean and you're a saint before God because of Christ. A couple of years ago, I was, a couple of years ago, I met a woman who was excited about going home for Thanksgiving to be with her parents. And even though the travel expenses were a problem for her and her husband, her young husband, and um, I asked her why she was so excited about, um, excited, and she was, you know, she's really Excited. Bouncing off the wall. And uh, she responded, it's because it would be the, it would be, um, she'd be able to be with both her parents at the same place at the same time. And, um, sorry. She said, she said when she was young, her parents divorced. And she called it a vicious divorce. That was her word. She didn't explain. I don't, I don't need to hear and her and her siblings rotated back and forth between her parents. 
Both her parents subsequently remarried and both had other children through those new spouses. When, when they divorced, neither of her parents were Christians. But years later, both of them, both parents and their respective spouses, new spouses, became Christians, responded to the message of the gospel and became Christians. It wasn't too long after that, she said, that after they had become Christians, that both parents realized that they needed to go back as much as possible and clean up the mess of their divorce. So they did. They, um, they sought each other out. They got reconciled as much as they could. They could not get remarried. They've already been remarried. They have children. It's wrong to go that way. And what they did is the significance in why she was so excited. They established, as two separate families, they established an annual celebration to, of their reconciliation for both families would always be together on Thanksgiving. And they would celebrate together. This was even, this was even, this was something, this is her point, that nothing is going to keep her from missing. Even finances, even the travel distance. She was not not going to be there with her parents celebrating reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you to go before us as you always do. Prepare hearts. Help us to be receptive to your word. Help us to be receptive both to the truth and the grace. Let us receive mercy and kindness and admonishment and reproof as needed. But we always give you the glory. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.